this is the Sunday that we make much of where we remember the fact that the Jesus Christ that is presented in Scripture, the Jesus Christ that Christians historically believed in, love, and worship, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. This is the Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And it is uh, probably an understatement to say that this is the most important event in all of human history. That, that probably doesn't even really capture the importance and the significance of the resurrection. This is an event that turned the world upside down. And that put the world into an orbit that can never be changed. And so the good news about that is that we have plenty to talk about. The resurrection is so important, we have plenty to talk about, which makes every year worthwhile. And so as, as I almost, I'll be honest, I almost felt overwhelmed in trying to think of, well, what are we going to preach from and uh, what are we going to talk about in regards to the resurrection? I decided actually to uh, preach from a text that I've actually had the opportunity to preach from before. This is one of my favorite accounts of the resurrection, and we're going to look at Luke's account of the resurrection. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, we are going to see how Luke records the resurrection for us. And we're going to look at some important things about Luke's account of the resurrection. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to argue, before we read the text, that Luke is going to tell us three things about the resurrection. Luke is going to go out of his way to make three things about the resurrection of Jesus crystal clear. I will go over them briefly now, and then after we read the text, we will go through them again slowly so that we'll be able to um, keep up with that. But the three things that we're going to see is that Luke is going to present the resurrection to us as the resurrection being, number one, bodily, number two, biblical, and number three, revolutionary. Now, I, I really wanted another B word to keep the alliteration going, uh, but I just couldn't find a B word that fit with the pattern. So unfortunately, we're not going to get three Bs. We're just going to get two Bs. But again, we are going to look at these three things about the resurrection from Luke's account. The resurrection was body, the resurrection was biblical, and the resurrection was revolutionary. So if you have your Bibles to open to Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin in verse 36 and read through the end of the gospel. And I would encourage you to read along because these are the very words of God. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, into Jerusalem, or forgive me, he carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, what an epic account of the resurrection Luke has provided for us. And as I already gave you our three things, those are the three things we are going to look at in Luke's account, that the resurrection is bodily, biblical, and revolutionary. And so the first thing we're going to see is that the resurrection was bodily. What do I mean by that? I mean it was physical and it was literal, right? The resurrection of Jesus was not a spiritual analogy for some other truth, The resurrection of Jesus is not just a metaphor for love conquering over evil or or all of our hopes and dreams resurrecting. The resurrection was not metaphoric. It was not some analogy. It was not spiritual, as if his body stayed in the grave, but he spiritually is still alive somewhere. No, the resurrection was bodily. It was physical. It was literal. And Luke hammers that point. Luke goes out of his way to redundantly prove this point. He wants us to see that the resurrection is physical and literal. It was not a hallucination. It was not a vision. It was not a metaphor. It was not spiritual. This was a literal flesh and bones resurrection. Now, before we prove that, I want to I want to make note of the fact that I am so thankful Luke went out of his way to do this because it was especially important in his day when people were not believing in the resurrection. But it's also important in our day for many reasons, and here's one of them. Because obviously, if you're a Christian and you've grown up in a Christian community, what I'm saying right now is kind of like a duh statement. Yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been going to Easter Sunday. I've been celebrating the resurrection my entire life. And I, so I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know that. Who doesn't, right? And the only people you might think who deny this are, you know, non-religious people, atheists and people who flat out reject the resurrection. But you need to understand that while it may not be as uh, prominent as it once was, there is a movement of theologians who claim themselves to be Christians. They fly the banner of Christianity, but try to claim that Jesus' resurrection was not a literal, physical, historical event. As a matter of fact, let me read you something from the New York Times just last Easter. This was printed last Easter, so this is only a year old. This is what was printed in the New York Times that bastion of great journalism. New York Times had an interview with a seminary president, this, a woman who also considers herself a pastor. So this woman is a seminary president and, and self-identifying pastor, and here's how the New York Times kicks off this interview. Happy Easter, Reverend Jones. This is Serene Jones, president of Union Theological Seminary. Happy Easter, Reverend Jones. To start, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. So the New York Times 
begins speaking to a pastor and a seminary president and says, I have issues with thinking of the resurrection as being a literal event, a flesh and blood event. He has problems with that. So you would think a pastor and seminary president of a Christian seminary would disagree with him, right? Well, here's how she responds. When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark. There's just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Well, apparently Luke is kidding himself. And apparently Paul and Peter and all the other witnesses to the flesh and blood resurrection are kidding themselves. Let me tell you something. The Gospels are not all over the place. They present one continuous, harmonious, literal resurrection story. Number two, the Gospel of Mark does have a resurrection story beyond the empty tomb. And even if it all it did have was the empty tomb, that's a resurrection. <laughs> But what I want us to see then is let's look at Luke. What's Luke's opinion of the resurrection? Does Luke think that resurrection is merely a symbol of ultimate love never being conquered? No, Luke sees this as a literal flesh and blood event, contrary to the New York Times. Look at what Luke says. Verse 36, Jesus had met with some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and now all the disciples are gathered together, and they're trying to discuss this. And then Jesus just miraculously appears before their eyes in verse 36 and startles them. And then in verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So their first inclination is this is not flesh and blood. They think this is just a spiritual, maybe even a hallucination. And so Jesus is going to prove to them that this is not spiritual or a metaphor or a hallucination, but it's literal flesh and blood, and he's going to do so with three ways. He's going to do so in three ways. The first way that Jesus proves that this is not a spirit or a metaphor, but is literal, is the, he shows them his crucifixion scars. Right? Look, he says in verse 30, 38, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in my hearts? Look at verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Why would he point them to his hands and his feet? Why not his torso or his head or his hair? Because he wants them to see the scars of the crucifixion. That's where he was nailed to the cross. And so what Jesus is proving to them is that this is, I'm the same person that you saw die on Friday. I'm the same person. It's the same body. This is the same body that was nailed to the cross. This was the same body that was locked in the tomb. And this is the same body that's in front of you now. This is a bodily resurrection. And it's the same body that Jesus took on the cross. It's glorified. But it's the same body. It's the same person. He still has his resurrection scars. So Jesus' scars prove this is literal, not metaphoric, not spiritual. But then he goes on to make it even more clear by telling them that he has a flesh and bones body. Not only does he still have scars, but you know what? Scars could maybe still be hallucinated, but he says, no, I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and bones. You can touch me. Look at what he says in verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
So the New York Times said they have issue thinking of the resurrection as a literal flesh and bones resurrection. But Jesus is explicitly clear this is a literal flesh and bones resurrection. He says, I have flesh and bones and spirits don't have this. Jesus had the scars of the crucifixion. He had a flesh and bones body that was capable of being touched. Touch me and see, he says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then notice this, Luke proves the literal resurrection a third way. So he, first he proves it with the scars, then he proves it with Jesus' literal, touchable flesh and bones body, and then he proves it in kind of a funny way. Look at what he does in verses 40 and continued. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, now let's take a quick rabbit trail for a minute so you can see what that means. What does that mean that they disbelieve for joy and were marveling? This is basically just kind of a fancy way of saying this is too good to be true. Right? When, when you disbelieve for joy, it's, it's, the text is literally saying they had so much joy that it caused them to disbelieve. That, that's essentially saying it's too good to be true. This was, the, the, life is just never this good. The, these disciples who are in hiding because they're being persecuted because they believed in the wrong Messiah, the man who they thought was the Messiah, the king, the Lord was just murdered and killed. He's done for. So they're humiliated, they're depressed, and they're in hiding, and life is never this good. Life is never this good. And here comes the Messiah that they thought was the Messiah and then thought wasn't the Messiah. And now he has showed up again, conquering death, doing something no one ever thought possible. They were marveling and they were filled with so much joy that they were thinking, there's no way this is true. So in other words, the text is telling us they're still kind of in shock right now. They're, they're still just kind of not really grasping and understanding the gravity of the situation that is before them. So they are still disbelieving for joy. They are still marveling. They're touching his resurrected body. They're seeing his scars. And then Luke adds in something that doesn't this seem kind of out of place? Look at verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why would Luke include that? Why is that important? Right? Jesus just rose from the dead and he's about to commission the disciples and then ascend into heaven. And Luke finds it important to tell us that he needed a road trip snack. Why did he, Luke has limited space here, right? He, when Luke is writing this gospel, he, is, he, is limit, he has a limited space, limited resources. He has to only include what's important. Why did we need to know that Jesus needed something to eat? Well, that's because again, Luke is pushing this point that Jesus' resurrection was literal and physical. And here's why. Because spirits, hallucinations, and metaphors don't eat food. And they don't get hungry. When I was a kid, uh, there was a movie I loved when I was a young boy called Casper the Friendly Ghost. And it was, it's Casper the Friendly Ghost is a bit of a Cinderella story, right? There's these four ghosts. I'm pretty sure they're brothers. I don't remember. But there's these four ghosts, and three of them are fat and mean and cruel to the youngest one, Casper, who's really friendly and, and, and really likable. And they kind of make Casper their slave. And these four ghosts, they take over someone's house. They take over a human's house. So now these humans, that's kind of the plot of the movie. These humans are learning to live with these ghosts. And there's this one scene where the three mean ghosts kind of hover over the dinner table and Casper has to bring food out to them. 
And the ghosts start eating this food, and it's funny because you can, because they're ghosts, they're transparent, you can see the food kind of travel down their, what would be their throats, and then circle in their stomachs, and then it just immediately starts falling all to the ground. Like they're eating, and it's just immediately falling to the ground, and then Casper has to go in and clean up the food. Now, why did they throw that in? For comic relief? Yes, that's why they threw it in. But notice, they also threw it in because they're ghosts. So physical food can't go in their body. They don't have a body. So the food just fell straight to the ground. So this is essentially, Luke is doing the exact opposite of the Casper the Friendly Ghost. He's saying, look, Jesus ate food and it didn't just fall straight to the ground. He had an actual body that could gnaw on food and digest his food. He had a body that was able to be hungry, potentially. So he brings in this point to make a third proof that this was a literal flesh and blood resurrection. Jesus had scars, Jesus had flesh and bones, and Jesus ate food. This was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. The resurrection was a literal event, it's not a metaphor. And Luke goes out of his way in 36 through 43 to prove that. But then the narrative progresses to our next really important point. Something else we also learn about the resurrection. Was the resurrection bodily, physical, literal? Yes, it was bodily. But we see it very important that the resurrection was also biblical. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So once they've kind of come to and they've realized what has happened, the resurrection, Jesus begins to preach to them. And what Jesus tells them is, I told you this would happen. I tried to tell you about this. And then he goes even further to that point. He says, now, how did I know this was going to happen? Because the scriptures taught this. The scriptures from, he says, he says, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that is a way of categorically covering the entire Old Testament. Every Old Testament book can be categorized into one of those categories in Jewish thought. So Jesus here is saying, the entire Old Testament is about me. And the entire Old Testament has been teaching and prophesying this coming moment. And then in verse 45, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So it tells us that they never really had a true understanding of the Old Testament. They were always misreading it. And Jesus finally opened their eyes so that they could see Jesus in the Old Testament. They could see the entire story now was all about him in this very moment, this gospel. So Jesus immediately begins a Bible study the second he resurrects. That's the first thing he does. He eats and then he begins a Bible study. Now, when we talk about the resurrection being biblical, there are actually three separate points to that that I want us to look at. So it's kind of like 2A, 2B, 2C. Point number two, the resurrection was biblical, but there's three different subtle distinctions of what it means to be biblical. What does it mean that the resurrection was biblical? Well, there's three different things that we see in this text. One of them explicit, two of them are subtle. The first one and the obvious one is this. What does it mean that the resurrection was biblical? It means this, that the scriptures prophesied the resurrection. 
Or if you want, you can use the word predicted. The scriptures predicted the resurrection. Whichever word you want to use, the scriptures prophesied, the scriptures predicted, the scriptures ultimately said this would happen long before it did. Jesus essentially tells the disciples in 44, 45, and 46 that this gospel story, this story of death and resurrection of the Messiah, was not a a last-second backup plan that God figured out on the fly. Right? It wasn't as if everything went wrong. The, uh, Jesus came and it didn't work and they ended up killing him. But God the Father said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what to do with this. I know how I can use this for good. No, Jesus says this is part of the grand narrative. This has always been the Father's plan. Things are going exactly according to plan. He tells us that what has happened is everything that was said to happen in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He says that these things must be fulfilled. If Jesus doesn't die and resurrect, then the Old Testament is broken. And it's not worth our time. No, but because the Old Testament was God's word, and God's word spoke of Christ, and God's word prophesied these events, they had to be fulfilled. So Jesus reminds us that the Old Testament prophesied, predicted these events. That this is part of a grand divine narrative. That God was not caught off guard by any of this. And that's why Jesus regularly rebukes them for not understanding this. He tells them in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Jesus is saying, the Bible said this would happen. I said this would happen. And yet here you are disbelieving for joy. You see, the scriptures predicted that these events would take place which is one of our many powerful reasons for why we believe in the inspiration of the Old Testament. But there's a couple other things we need to to branch off from this. So the Old Testament scriptures prophesied the resurrection. That's what it means to be biblical, but there's another thing that that means for us then. Two other things. The first one is this. Scripture, yes, predicts the resurrection, prophesies the resurrection, but here's what this means also, that the scripture interprets the resurrection. The scriptures interpret the resurrection. And folks, I cannot tell you how important this point is. In other words, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is Jesus' resurrection was a physical, bodily, historical event. So yes, a Jewish man died and rose again. But what do we do with that? What does that mean for me? So what? Crazy things happen. Why does that matter to me? Why is that important? Why is the resurrection a global phenomenon that we all think about and celebrate on this day? So a crazy thing happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Big deal. You see, the resurrection is really loses almost all of its power unless you understand how and why it happened. And that's not something the historical data gives you. That's something the Word of God gives you. In other words, here's how I like to phrase it. The resurrection did not happen in a vacuum. The resurrection was not a miracle in a vacuum. Here's what I mean by that. The resurrection was not just this random display of power. But rather, the resurrection was a display of miraculous power within the context of divinely prophesied interpretive scripture. 
The resurrection was a fulfillment of God's revelation plan and word. So God's revelation plan and word is what we need to turn to in order to understand the resurrection. And this is why this becomes so important because Christians love to speak apologetically of Jesus' resurrection kind of being the first uh, stone in our uh, apologetic house and then everything is built on that. So in other words, they say things like this. Well, the reason I believe the Old Testament scriptures are inspired is because Jesus rose from the dead and he said they were inspired. And if someone rose from the dead, I would want to listen to him. Now, there's some truth to that. But I just have to ask you this, why? There's a movie called Collision that I highly recommend to everybody. And it's a debate, it's a documentary debate between an atheist who has passed away named Christopher Hitchens, and he debates a pastor in Idaho named Douglas Wilson. And at one point in time, the atheist says something amazing. He says this, if I was sitting on a bus and a man came up to me and told me, you know, I was once dead, but now I'm alive again. He said, even if I believed him, he said, I wouldn't believe him, but let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument, I believed him. So this man was once dead and now he's alive again. That doesn't make his math better than mine. That doesn't make his arguments more sound than mine. That doesn't make his morals more moral than mine. So you rose from the dead and now all of a sudden you're a, the best mathematician in the world. You're the best physic, phys, you know, physician in the world. Like, what does that prove? I rose from the dead, therefore listen to everything I say. He questioned that. Why? And honestly, I think it's a decent question. You see, Jesus did not just rise from the dead and say, okay, listen to me. The Father told the disciples to listen to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before he rose from the dead. Jesus believed his words were worth listening to before he resurrected. The resurrection was not just Jesus going, ta-da, look how powerful I am. Now you should believe everything I said. Now you should believe in the Bible. No, because the scriptures are what interpret the resurrection. The scriptures tell us this is what it means, this is why God did it, and this is how you respond to it. Without that, all you have is some crazy story of a Jewish Messiah coming back from the dead. That's all you have. The scriptures are the soil that the resurrection is planted in. Without the scriptures, the resurrection doesn't mean anything to you. And in the case you think I'm, 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 I'm not truthful here, this is a constant theme in the book of Luke. So keep your marker here and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells a parable that we call the rich man and Lazarus. As you turn there, let me set the stage for this parable. The parable here is of this rich man who had everything the world could offer. And outside of his home, there was a poor man, a beggar named Lazarus. And the rich man was rude and he ignored and he did not love his neighbor and he treated Lazarus poorly. And then they both die and they go to the place of the dead and they're in different places. Lazarus is with Abraham in glory and, and the rich man is in torment and suffering. And so the rich man starts having a conversation with Abraham. The rich man who's perished and he's about to be judged and cast into the lake of fire is, is, is having a conversation with Abraham in glory. And look at this amazing converse, conversation beginning in verse 27. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. 
So the rich man gives Abraham a request. He says, Abraham, I don't want my brothers and my family to die and end up in this place. So you need to send Lazarus back from the dead and preach the gospel to them so that they don't come here. Right? That's his request. Send Lazarus back from the dead, preach to my family, and surely they will not end up here. And how does Abraham respond? Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. Let them hear them. Abraham responds with, they don't need Lazarus. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. They don't need a preacher to come back from the dead. They've got the Bible. Let them hear the Bible. That's what they need to hear. And then here's the funny part. The rich man thinks that Abraham missed the point. The rich, Abraham is focused on the preaching part, but the rich man is focused on the resurrection part. So the rich man is essentially going to say this. I get it, right? If, if any person preaches to my brothers, they're not going to believe him if they don't believe Moses. But here's the difference. If someone rises from the dead, if someone displays this miraculous power, then of course they're going to listen to him then. If someone came back from the dead, then of course you would listen to them, right? So he tries to clarify his point with Abraham. Look at verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's the argument. If they rise from the dead, then everything else they say, we're going to have to believe. But how does Abraham respond? Verse 31, and he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So let me ask you this. From Jesus' own words, what does a resurrection apart from the scriptures mean? Nothing. It means nothing and it does nothing. It's just some crazy event in the world that you can't explain. Chalk it up to Ripley's Believe It or Not. But only when the resurrection happens in the foundation of the God-breathed, prophesied, interpretive scriptures does it suddenly have meaning and life and we have understanding. The scriptures prophesied the resurrection. The scriptures interpret the resurrection. And what this all leads to then is that the scriptures establish the resurrection. What I mean by that is that the scriptures are why we believe in the resurrection. If somebody were to ask you, why do you believe in the resurrection? You know what you should say? Because the Bible tells me so. That's the right answer. Do we have many other great extra biblical proofs of the resurrection, historical proofs? Yes, we do. But in Jesus' mind, those are not ultimately the reason we believe. The scriptures need to be the reason we believe. You see, in other words, this is why I flatly deny this idea that I believe in the Bible because Jesus did. Jesus rose from the dead, so listen to him, and he believed the Bible, so I will believe in the Bible too. The scriptures actually present it the exact opposite way. Jesus himself doesn't say, I rose from the dead, so you should believe in me, so now believe in the Bible. Jesus actually condemns people for not believing in the Bible before he resurrected. Evidence is not ultimately why we believe in the resurrection. The word of God is why we believe in the resurrection. We do not believe, because, we do not believe in the Bible because we believe in Christ. We believe in Christ because we believe in the Bible. The resurrection is not ultimately the foundation. The word of God is. And here's where I get that from. Stay in Luke, but turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. 
We are back in our text, but we are going to go earlier than our text, and this is on the road to Emmaus. So what's happening here is some of the disciples, not all of them, some of them are walking to Emmaus. They're taking the road that leads to the town of Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. But what Jesus does is he miraculously blinds them so that they don't, they're looking and talking to Jesus, but they don't know that they're talking to the resurrected Jesus. And and so let me set the scene for a moment before we look at the verse I want us to look at. So Jesus right now is having a conversation with some of the disciples. And because he's blinded them from noticing him, that means at this point the disciples have zero evidence of the resurrection. Well, they have some evidence. Some of the women went and saw an empty tomb. So all they know so far is some of the women think they saw an empty tomb. And by the way, back then, women weren't even allowed a credible testimony in a a courtroom. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but part of their culture is they don't even really believe women anyway. So they have this unreliable account from some hysterical, hopeful women that they saw an empty tomb. They've got no physical evidence. They've got no other eyewitness accounts except for some unreliable minority testimony. They saw how well the tomb was guarded and blocked off. They have no evidential reason to believe in the resurrection yet. And notice the conversation that takes place with Jesus. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, after Jesus asked them why they were so sad, and they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what took place this weekend? Right, we're sad because Jesus is dead and he's not alive. And so here's how Jesus responds to them. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all of the many evidences that scientists have provided for you. No. O foolish ones, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus rebuked them for not believing in the resurrection before they had evidence for it. So what does that tell you? Why does Jesus think we should believe in the resurrection? Because of evidence? No, because of the scriptures. How much sense does it make to say, I believe in the Bible because of the resurrection, when Jesus is here telling these people, you foolish ones, you should have believed in the resurrection because of the Bible. Jesus reverses that. Jesus believed the Old Testament was worth believing before he resurrected. As a matter of fact, he says the Old Testament was so worth believing, you shouldn't be surprised at my resurrection. We do not believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus because we believe in the Bible. That's the order of operations here from Jesus' own mouth. He does not praise them for saying, good for you. You refuse to believe in the resurrection until you saw me. Now you know the Bible's trustworthy. He says the exact opposite. Shame on you. The Bible was trustworthy before you saw me resurrect. Why didn't you listen? He does the same thing with doubting Thomas. They go back and tell Thomas that Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas doesn't believe them. He says, I won't believe you until I see it. Jesus shows up and shows Thomas. He falls down and calls Jesus God and worships him. And Jesus says, you see me because you believe? You have to, believe, you have to see me in order to believe? Blessed are those who believe who do not see. 
Matter of fact, we, again, we see this in verse 44 of our text. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus assumes that his words and the Old Testament scriptures were worth believing before he resurrected. Why do you believe in the resurrection? Because the Bible tells you so. That is Jesus' preferred epistemic foundation. That means the foundation of knowledge. How do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Because God told you. And that's more important than the evidence. So that's what it means that the resurrection is biblical. The Bible prophesied the resurrection. The Bible interprets the resurrection. And the Bible establishes the resurrection. So we've seen that the resurrection is bodily. We've seen the resurrection is biblical. Let's move to our third and final point. The resurrection was revolutionary. What does that word mean? The word it, revolutionary means that something has brought cataclysmic change. The resurrection changed everything. Look at verse, verse 47. Jesus reminding them what the Old Testament said, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I don't have time to elaborate on just how much change the resurrection and the new covenant brought, but let me just from this text remind us that the New Testament, the new covenant, the resurrection of Christ, it changed everything. Christian, the Christian religion, the Jewish religion will never be the same. The world will never be the same. People will never be the same. The resurrection literally changed everything. It changed religion. It changed revelation. It changed everything. The world can never be the same. This is why the apostles were accused by their opponents in the first century as being the men who have turned the world upside down. Everything is different. Notice Jesus tells them that, verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus is now telling them about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. The Old Testament was, was largely, not entirely, but largely a Jewish-centered faith. What I mean by that is, is we don't have a lot of evangelism in the Old Testament. We know it took place. Jonah went to Nineveh. Even in Jesus' ministry, he left Jerusalem once to preach to Gentiles. And, and Jesus tells the Pharisees that when they go far and beyond, that they turn people into twice the sons of hell as them. So we know the Pharisees did some evangelism outside of Jerusalem. But for the most part, the Old Testament is a Jewish-centered faith. The prophets were for the Jews. The scriptures were for the Jews. It was a Jewish-centered faith. And now Jesus here is saying, yeah, this stuff began in Jerusalem, but it's going to go to the ends of the earth now. Jesus is telling them, my kingdom is no longer a city in the Middle East. My kingdom is the world. My people are no longer an ethnic people in the Middle East. My people are all over the world. He's fulfilling the Abrahamic promises that that which came through the Jews, Jesus Christ, would now bless all nations. In all that we see in the Psalms of every nation coming to Christ, we see in Revelation that kings and tribes and tongues will all be represented there, that the kings will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. We see that everything is different now. Christ is now commissioning his apostles for a religion of world conquest. Christianity is a religion that seeks to win the entire world. We have an agenda. 
And that agenda is global conquest. Jesus changed everything. And he tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says to wait in Jerusalem, you will be clothed with power from on high. How different is Pentecost? Pentecost and the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has radically changed the people of God, the ministry of God, what we're capable of doing. You see, Jesus' resurrection changed everything. It changed religion. It changed the world. People weren't even Trinitarians until Jesus showed up. It, it revealed further what we know about God. That's why the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians says we no longer count people and view people according to the flesh. Because Jesus changed even how we view people. You can't see the world the same way. You can't see people the same way. You can't see religion the same way. And it's all because of the resurrection. Where Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven where the scriptures tell us he is now king of the universe making all his enemies a footstool at his feet. Jesus is sitting on the throne of David in heaven, ruling over the entire world. That's what the resurrection accomplished. The resurrection changed our message. It changed worship. It changed outreach. It changed everything. It's revolutionary. The world can never be the same. The faith of God's people can never be the same because the revelation, rev, re, resurrection changed everything. So those are our three points. That's what we learned about the resurrection day. The resurrection is bodily. The resurrection is biblical. The resurrection is revolutionary. But I want us to conclude with this. The text does one last important thing for us. And the text tells us how the disciples responded to all this good news. And it serves as a perfect reminder of how we respond to all this good news. So we've, we just learned that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And we just learned that the scriptures prophesied, interpreted, and established this event. And we just learned that Jesus has now commissioned us to save the world. And he's changed everything and is reigning from on high. And his spirit has come. We've learned all of these glorious things. So what do we do? How do we respond? Are, are we still going to just disbelieve for joy? Or are we going to respond to this? And notice how the disciples respond in verse 52. After Jesus ascends into heaven. 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So there's three primary ways that we respond every day to the resurrection. And here are those three primary ways. The first one is we worship Jesus. How does the resurrection change your relationship to Jesus? Worship him as your God. These monotheistic Jews who knew that only God alone is worthy of worship see the resurrection, see the ascension, and then they do what? They, quote, worship him in verse 42. 52, forgive me. That means they recognize the resurrection is proof of Jesus' deity. Jesus is their God, and they are now worshiping him as God. So how do you respond to the resurrection? Worship Jesus Christ as your God and your Lord. We see this again in verse 53, that they were continually in the temple blessing God. Continually in the temple. So how do you respond to the resurrection? You not only worship Jesus on a personal level as accepting him as your God and worshiping him, but you worship him at a corporate level too. You need to be in the temple, quote unquote, continually. In other words, in the New Testament, what this means is you need to go to church. You need to be in church. Church matters. That's how they responded to God. When Jesus ascended into heaven, you know what they didn't say? This is an amazing truth that I'm going to go sit under a tree and meditate with for a while. 
They didn't say, oh, the Holy Spirit's going to fill me and that means I am the church and so I don't need the church. Great. Their instinctual response was to gather with believers, proclaim these truths in worship, in a place of worship. If you're not going to church, if you don't go to church on a regular basis, if if you're a, a Christian who has not made church going a part of your life, I want to encourage you, you are not worshiping Jesus the way his earliest disciples and followers worshiped him, which was corporate with the people of God. And that is why, as we're in this situation right now, we should be heartbroken. We should not be interpreting this, this, this quarantine as a vacation or as a convenience. This should break our hearts. We should be desperate for things to change. Because this is how you worship God. You accept Christ as your God, you accept Him as your Lord, and you constantly bless God with the people of God. The first way we respond to the resurrection is with worship, both personal and corporate. The second way we respond to the resurrection is obedience. Number one is worship. Number two is obedience. Notice what they do. What did Jesus tell them? In verse 49, he says, I'm going to send my promise of the Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what do they do? They rush off into the world and start preaching the gospel? No. Verse 52 And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem. They obeyed him. The next important way that we respond to the resurrection, we say, okay, Jesus is my God, he is my Lord, he's alive, he's reigning in heaven. What does that mean? I need to obey him. What he says goes. I need to listen to his word, and I need to trust him and obey him and do what he says. Obedience is an important part of how we worship Jesus. It's not legalism. Obedience is not legalism. Be very careful of anyone who would define a legalist or a Pharisee as someone who loves Jesus more than they do. If you love Jesus, if you know who Jesus is, you will want to obey him. So we worship Jesus, we obey Jesus. And then here's the last one, joy. You know what the resurrection should fill you with? Joy, right? Verse 52, they returned and worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The resurrection should make your hearts glad. And here's the best news. The resurrection is not a one-time thing. Jesus lives forever. That means this is the joy we have available to us every single morning. I've heard people online say stuff like, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And even though I I do think it's appropriate to have a Sunday that we dedicate to this, that is true. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. I'll take it one further. Every single day is Resurrection Day. Because Jesus Christ lives today. He reigns today. He's conquering his enemies today. He's promised to come back. So the joy that they have at the resurrection did not end in the first century. It continues for the rest of time. We should wake up every day. It doesn't mean there aren't times to be sad. There aren't times to mourn. There aren't times to grieve. But generally speaking, the disposition of the Christian is we are filled with joy. And we ought to have more joy than any people group, any person in the world. Because our God reigns. Our God has conquered sin, has conquered death, fulfilled his promises, made many more glorious promises, and he's reigning on high and given us his spirit. What do you have to be down about? How do we respond to the resurrected Christ? We worship him as God. 
We worship Him with the people of God. We obey Him and we live our lives with an overwhelming joy and unbreakable peace that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection is bodily. The resurrection is biblical. The resurrection is revolutionary. So worship Jesus. Obey Jesus. And enjoy Jesus forever with you.